One of the biggest struggles of the Christian life, if not the biggest struggle, is whether or not we're going to trust that God will provide our needs. So often we wonder, is he really going to deliver on his promises? So if you're here and you've ever struggled with anxiety, that is in fact what you are struggling with. Is God going to be faithful to deliver on his promises? Have you ever struggled about your health and wondered, got sick, am I going to make it? Does it ever freak you out sometimes when you hear stories of young, healthy people who fall over dead somewhere and it seems like the doctors have no idea why they died? I heard a story about that just last year. A pastor friend of mine, his brother, who was another pastor in the Memphis area, was sitting in his car, was just about to go to an appointment with somebody, and right then and there, slumped over, passed away. No explanation. They don't know why. Those those stories freak me out. I don't feel so invincible. My health feels so fragile at times. Get a little pain in your chest. You're like, wait up, am I getting a heart attack? No, thankfully. But who knows? Have you ever had anxieties about your finances, your career? Do you really feel so confident that you're going to keep your job? I mean, could at any moment you just lose your job? Could the economy go south very quickly? Wasn't that long ago, was it, where so many people were being laid off in this country? How do you know that won't happen again and even worse and affect you more severely? How about fears and anxieties about friends and family members, our children? Is it one of the worst things, seeing somebody you love start heading down a path that you know is not a good path and you're trying to warn them and love them and help them, but you realize there's nothing you can do? So you worry and you fret and you're anxious At this point, I was wondering, how many of you were like, well, I wasn't anxious until I came to this church. (laughs) Now that you bring all that up, thanks, Pastor Phil. But that's my point. My point is, is that one of our greatest and most frequent struggles is to know, is this God that we believe in going to provide? Is he going to deliver and come through on his promises? I could go on in other sermons in the future and the If you wanted to read a helpful book on this, John Piper's written two excellent books called Battling Unbelief and Future Grace, and in both of these books, he makes a convincing case in my mind that the root of all of your sin, yes, the root of all sin, not just anxiety, is rooted in your failure to trust God's promises. You and I choose sin because we lack faith to believe in all that God is and has done for us through Jesus Christ. Read those books and be convinced with me that this is huge. The good news is that God has given us his word and teaches us again and again through all sorts of different ways. He will provide. He will deliver. Yes, you can count on him. And that's the theme of the book of Genesis, one of the biggest, most important themes. Better yet, you could summarize the entire Bible that way. 
You ever wanted to try and figure out, all right, what's the Bible about? Give me one sentence and summarize the whole Bible. What, what would be that sentence? I remember reading a whole list of different Bible teachers and scholars, and one of them said this. The Old Testament is about God making promises. The New Testament is about God keeping those promises through Jesus Christ. That's the message of the whole Bible in one sentence. And that's going to be the theme as we continue to study through the book of Genesis this morning. God has made great promises to his people, and he will keep those promises to them and eventually through Jesus Christ. So let's turn our Bibles to Genesis, and we're going to look at two simple points this morning. Two simple points. God will provide the land that he promised. That's point number one. Point number two, God will provide the life that he promised. Land and life. Hopefully that's easy to remember. Two simple points. God will provide the land and life that he promised. We already heard last week and in the week before that in Genesis chapter 12, God made a huge promise to Abraham. Go from your country, leave your family, leave your father's house, and go to a land that I will show you, and you will have descendants, many descendants. So he makes a promise for land and for children. But all through last week's sermon covering eight chapters of Genesis, whew, that was a lot, He's not in the land yet. Where we ended off last week, he was in the land of the Philistines. He's not permanently located, and he has no children. So that brings us to the question, will God deliver? Will he provide good on his promises? And the answer is, of course, yes. He is worthy of our trust. And there's so many different lessons and nuggets that we could take from all these different stories, but I want us to hone in this morning on the main reason that these stories exist, as far as I understand it. And if you're ever wondering, well, how do you know? So we're going to look at several different chapters here. We're going to try and boil them down into two simple truths. I know that's the big idea, Pastor Phil. It might sound a little arrogant. Oh, yeah, you've got it figured out. Now, I could be wrong. I don't want to sound arrogant. But one of the reasons I feel really confident that these are the main themes isn't just because I've read many world-class scholar books and commentaries that say these are the main themes, so agree with me, although that is what many of them say. It's that when you see the stories and the way that they're structured, it's as if the, the writer of Moses is telling you this is the main point. So I want you to see the pattern that happens starting in chapter 21 where we left off last week. I'm just going to show you the big picture pattern, not as many details this time. In chapter 21, we see the birth of Isaac. God delivers his promise, and we're going to see that in our second point. Then we see a story starting in verse 8, where there is a family rift between Ishmael, the son born from Hagar, And then Isaac, the newborn son, and look down in verse 9. This is a key verse here. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be the heir with my son 
Isaac. There's a little conflict going on between the two sons. So here's how this pattern starts. Family rift between two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael mocks Isaac and Mama Bear gets a little upset, okay? She gets a little protective. Sarah clearly loves Isaac because this is her own child. This is the child of promise. Sarah says, you are not going to have the blessing, Ishmael, so out. God then confirms this in verse 12, the two sons, their fate, Isaac will be the son of promise. You see that in verse 12, God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for though Isaac shall For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. But I will make a nation out of the son of the slave woman because he is your offspring. So there's God speaking about the fate of the two sons. Ishmael marries a foreigner in the end of the chapter, chapter 21, verse 21. And then we realize that Ishmael is blessed by God in the end of the story, but he is not getting the blessing. And that's little unit number one. If you see the next little paragraph, starting in verse 22, you see a treaty with Abimelech. So Abraham starts to make this covenant treaty with Abimelech because of some wells that were stolen from him, wells that he dug. And at the end of the story, look at the very end of the story of chapter 21, verse 33, it says that Abraham planted a tree in Beersheba, called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And that's how that little story unit ends. Then you move to the next story, and it's Abraham offering Isaac. And here what we see is there's going to be a contrast between Abraham and Isaac and his families. Remember, Abraham had a barren wife named Sarai. God eventually gives them this child miraculously. And then there's two sons in conflict, as we talked about. The younger son will be the one that is chosen. And the son that he loves is about to die in chapter 22, or at least seems like he's going to die. And then after That little incident, God gives a promise. Look at chapter 22, verse 17. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And that kind of ends that little unit there. Abraham being contrasted later, as we'll see, with Isaac and his own family and his own two sons and his own son that's going to have issues and conflict and he might die but then a promise is given to the younger son after this we see a genealogy at the end of chapter 22 the last few verses 20 through 24 after that genealogy you see sarah's death and her burial and this is going to be really important she is buried in the land of canaan which is the land of promise Then we get ourselves to the center of the story, the longest chapter of this section, of this structure. The center of the story is right here where Isaac gets a wife named Rebekah. We'll go through this a little bit more later, but just know this is the middle point. And then everything that we just saw in terms of its structure gets repeated on the other half. So Sarah died right before the Rebekah story. What happens on the other side of the Rebekah story? Chapter 25, Abraham dies and he gets buried in the land of Canaan. The exact same parallel. Sarah's death, Abraham's death. Then there's a genealogy, just like there was in the previous story. This time it's a genealogy of Ishmael. Then you have that Abraham versus Isaac comparison. Look at chapter 25 and notice what happens in Isaac's family. Verse 19, 
These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethel, the Armenian of Padan Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Armenian, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Hello, clue number one, here's some sort of comparison to Abraham. Like father, like son. He marries a woman that cannot have children. But then he prays. The Lord grants his prayer, similar to the way Abraham prayed. And the Lord blessed his prayer for Abimelech. And then Rebekah, she conceived. Then we hear about these two children that are within her, and they're struggling, and they're fighting. And then the Lord says the fate of these two children. These two will be two different nations. The younger will serve the older, just like Ishmael and Isaac. And then right after this story, we get told about Esau feeling like he's going to die. This is the story we see in verse 29 and following, where Esau is so hungry. Oh, I'm so hungry. He thinks he's going to die, just like Isaac looked like he was going to die. And then he sells his birthright to Jacob. Verse 31, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is my birthright? Jacob says, swear to me now. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Jacob gave Esau the bread and the stew. He ate and drank and rose and went his way. What happens right after the selling of the birthright? The almost death of the firstborn, just like in the Isaac story? The confirmation of God's promise to Isaac comes. And that's verse 26 and following. It's the same exact language at the end of the Isaac at the altar story. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. This is verse 4 of chapter 26. In your offspring all the nations will be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice. So should you be surprised that after that flow, what's the next story? Isaac's with Abimelech and they're fighting over wells. The very wells that Abraham dug. I hope you're starting to see that there's a literary structure here where these stories parallel one another. Like, exactly. I'm seeing it. I hope you are. After that covenant with Abimelech, we turn then to the family rift between Jacob and Esau. This is chapter 27 and following, and you can read about this later. But what you'll see is these two sons, they're fighting against one another. The younger son is the one that's going to get the blessing, and the mama bear gets really upset. She does not love the older son says it explicitly, actually. Look at chapter 25, verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah, she loved Jacob. And in the same way that Sarah tried to get Ishmael out of the house, so in the same way, we see that Sarah was saying, hey, the promise is going to come to Isaac, not Ishmael. And now we see Rebekah saying the promise I'm not going to let it come to Esau. It's going to come to Jacob. Then God speaks of the two sons' fate in the same way he does in the other story. Esau marries foreign wives just like Ishmael does. And Esau ends up at the end of the story being blessed, but not the blessing. My point in bringing all this to your attention is so that you can know that the center of the story is that longest chapter, that story about Rebecca. Which then, if we dial that all back in and say, okay, so what's the point then of these collections of stories that parallel one another? And if that's the center, what does that mean for us? It means that the main point of these stories is that God is going to deliver his promises about land and about life. When you check out the story more closely and you start reading and slowing down and saying, okay, what's going on in the Rebecca story if that's the center of all these different stories? 
And you realize that God is telling us through this story that this is the land, that Abraham has the land, he started to get a piece of it, and that Isaac will be the son of promise. So look at chapter 24 with me. Let's look at this closely. And I'm going to read just the first eight verses so you can start to see the flow of the whole point of this middle long story. We're not going to read the whole thing, but just the first eight verses. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. So he's basically like on his deathbed, okay? The Lord blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, his oldest of the house, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. So first thing he's really hoping on his deathbed, do not intermarry with Canaanites. The seed of the woman cannot be coming from the seed of the serpent, which is the seed of the Canaanites. That's a huge theme that we've seen throughout Genesis. Then look what he says, servant says back in verse 5, the servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. Do not let Isaac live in that land. The Lord, verse 7, the God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, he said to your offspring, I will give this land, the land of Canaan. That's the land. And he will send an angel and he will take a wife for my son from there. And so this is how the story gets started. Abraham's on his deathbed and he is saying very emphatically, servant, you need to make a swear, a promise that you will not let Isaac go back to my homeland. I want you to go get a wife for my homeland because he can't marry a Canaanite woman because of the seed and because of the land. It's the very center of the story. And so the next two stories around it should further highlight this point. What are the two stories that are surrounding the Rebecca story? The death of Sarah, the death of Abraham. And both of them are buried in the land of Canaan. Now, if for some of you, you're struggling with like, okay, sounds cool, interesting, but what does this matter to me today, here and now? Here's where it gets really good. I think it gets really good at least. I hope you do too. <laughs> Abraham dies and is buried next to Sarah in the land that he purchased from the Hittites. That's told in chapter 23. Remember the question we asked. Will God be good on his promise? Yes. Abraham, throughout all of the story so far, is mostly a traveling, sojourning, all over the place, never really settling down in the land. But when he dies, he's buried in the land. Right before he dies, he gets a little taste of the land. He gets a little foretaste that, yes, you get to purchase and own some of the land that I promised you. In other words, God is already now in Abraham's life fulfilling and delivering his promise. Not fully, but a little bit. Even before he dies, he gets to see by sight the land that God promised. And him possessing it, owning it, purchasing it. Isn't that good stuff? 
Yes, it's really good stuff. You and I need to realize that throughout the Bible, God is telling us that he is making promises. And all through the Bible, he's going to give you little foretastes where you can see. You can see with your eyes. You can see, I'm going to deliver on these promises. We're going to get the whole thing yet. Did Abraham get everything right then and there? The whole land, the whole nation. Did he get to see the descendants that were after him? No, he died and he had one son. But he got a little taste. In the middle of this series of stories is him and his wife in the land and him swearing, okay, through Isaac. In this land, don't let him go to the other land. God's been faithful. He got the land, can't lose it now. This is why it's good. God, throughout the scriptures, even in later Old Testament story, when they finally come into the land, they own the land, they possess the land, his promises are fulfilled, Israel becomes a great nation, then they sin, and then judgment comes on them, and then they lose the land. But right before they lose the land, Jeremiah says, I'm going to purchase a little plot of the land because I know we're coming back to land because this God is faithful to his promise. And then you go to the New Testament and you find that God is saying that that land promise is bigger and better than just a little plot of land in the Middle East That land promise is about the whole new heavens and the new earth. That one day I'm going to give you the promised land of new heavens and new earth. And so you and I, we have been given a promise from God. Not too different from Abraham. Not the same as Abraham. Not that specific land in Israel. But a land. The whole earth. And God's promise is grander, bigger, and better. And so for you and me, we should know, whoa, God's made some great and precious promises. But when you look around at the land, has he delivered on his promises? You guys like tornadoes, earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes. This land's not so good sometimes. It's screaming and shouting to us. There's something wrong with the land. It's not the promised land quite yet. But it will be because I'm the God who provides. I'm the God who delivers on my promise. So then where's our little Abraham-like foretaste? His name is Jesus. Because Jesus is the first of many series of dominoes that will fall when Jesus restores all of the new creation. So his resurrected body is the first of what will many, of many things to come of God telling us, yes, I will deliver on my promise of the land. So when you see Jesus, when you see his resurrected body, you as a Christian should be able to say, God's made promises to restore this whole new land and give us a land flowing with milk and honey, a promised land that'll be so wonderful, so great. And you look around at this land, and you're like, I don't see it. No, no, God's good. He's going to deliver on his promises. How do you know? Look at the resurrection. So at this point, I'm wondering, all right, is everybody following so far? And I thought, okay, we need to make sure we get this because this is good. This is good stuff. This is how you live the Christian life. Remember, all sin flows from your inability to trust God and his promises. So here's what we need to make sure we understand this morning. Do you know what a crocus flower is? By a show of hands, who knows exactly what a crocus flower is? Most of you don't, so you need to know. Here's a crocus flower. It is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, blooming flower in all of the flowers. Here's the picture that I think Genesis is giving to us with Abraham and Sarah dying in the land and swearing and saying, look, here's my son. I've fulfilled, I've delivered on my promise, Abraham. Before you die, you get a little taste. So imagine it like this. Think Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Think everything is eternal winter and it's never Christmas. The land is cold. It's winter. 
It's dreary. The land is cursed. That's where we live right now. There's good things about this land. There's good things about what we experience. But you should know it is not the fullness of what we could experience. This land is cursed. But God has given us a promise not too different than Abraham's. And he is saying, there's going to be beautiful flowers. There's going to be a new land, a new heavens, and a new earth. And it is going to be awesome. And you're wondering, in the cold, dreary days of your life, as you're drudging through the cold winter of Chicago, I mean, it's fitting that this sermon's coming on January 29th in the midst of the cold and the sprinkles of the snow showers coming down. Because honestly, we would be crazy if we lived here in Chicago and it was only winter. Like, seriously, right? I would be probably moving to a new church or something. Like, if it was only Chicago winter, 24-7, 365 days a year, you would be crazy to live here. I would think so. Maybe you just love it so much. It's dark, it's depressing, it's gray, it's cold, it's bitter cold. Did I mention it was cold? But why do we live here? Even though the winter can be harsh and cruel. Because it's short and spring is coming. How do you know spring is coming? Well, because you know that that's the cycle and it always comes. But here you get a little, a little sign in the middle of the winter. In January, in February, a crocus flower popping up, breaking through the, the cold winter of the land. In pops the most gorgeous flower through the snow. Isn't that a gorgeous image here? That's the resurrection of Jesus Christ bursting forth the old cursed land. And in comes this gorgeous new creation right in the middle of all the sick muck mire of this land. That's why you need to know about the crocus flower. You need to know that God provides on his promises and he gives you a sign. He gives you not just the crocus flower, he gives you something better. He gives you Jesus and his resurrection. So there's a phrase that you need to learn as you read your Bibles. The phrase is called already now, but not yet. Already now God has fulfilled on his promises. Already now he has come through. And that's what he does to Abraham already now. But fully has he? No, no, not yet. And you and I live in that tension right now as Christians. Already now, God has delivered on his promises. He has given us Jesus, his death, his resurrection. He has given us the church. He has given us so many wonderful things that he's promised. Already now, you can have them. You can see the flower. It's popped up through. But fully, has sin been erased completely? Does the earth still groan with longings and pains to say, I, I want this to be restored yeah, not fully. So as we live in that tension, I want to encourage you, just in the same way that you see Abraham dying in the land that God promised with a son, the son whom he has chosen, Isaac. God's good. Delivers. He is faithful. He will deliver. He will be good on his promise. This brings us to point number two. He's in the land as he dies, and he swears to his servants, swear to me that Isaac will marry the right woman so that the seed will continue and the promise of God will bring forth the good fruit that God said it would. And that brings us back to chapter 21, verse 1. Chapter 21, verse 1. God will provide the life that he promised. 
We already saw he provided the land. He will provide the life. 21 verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah and he said, as he had said, that's important. The Lord visited Sarah just as he had said. The time and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah born, Isaac. Isn't that the most unimpressive few verses when you've been waiting eight long chapters for this son? Oh yeah, Isaac was born. Like no fanfare, anticlimactic. But what do the verses communicate? There doesn't need to be any fanfare. The Lord did it just as he had said, just as he had promised in the very timing of his birth, which God had spoken to him. Why would there need to be some fanfare of like, whoa, he really had a baby. Of course he's going to have a baby. God said he was going to have a baby. You got to think that that's part of what the author's doing by making it seem so just matter of fact. In other words, God provides life from a nearly dead woman with a dead womb beyond the age of childbearing. He brings life through death just as he promised he would. I think there should be a little bit of awe and amazement. This is a miracle, isn't it? This Part of what makes it so interesting that it's so matter-of-fact is that for me, I'm thinking, wow, here's the moment. This is miraculous. It's just as God had said. But I don't want us to lose the wonder. I think we should realize that God, even though he delivers on his promises, they are amazing. And that's why the story then goes on to say in verse 6, and Sarah said, God made laughter for me and everyone who hears me will laugh over me. You remember, Isaac was called laughter because she was laughing at God for saying that he would be born. Now everybody is laughing with joy that he is born. Isn't that just like God to turn our sorrows and our sins into now the very sign of joy and laughter? It's because he takes death and he turns it into life. He brings sorrows and he turns them into joy. This is what our God does. If some of you just read these birth stories, especially in the Old Testament, and you're like, yeah, it's just maybe fairy tale like Let me read you something from the Chicago Tribune. A woman whose ovaries ceased to function almost three years ago was given birth to a healthy nine-pound baby girl, baffling doctors at three hospitals. That's the headline. It's impossible, impossible, the 35-year-old woman quoted. As one of the doctors kept saying, as he heard the fetal heartbeat, In effect, the birth took place after the woman had gone through menopause. Her doctor said the woman had been diagnosed with premature ovarian failure and was told that she did not have to worry about getting pregnant anymore. A further complication was that the woman was on some hormone medication, which was to help ease the symptoms of her early onset menopause. These medications normally serve as a very effective contraceptive. So Dr. Jerry Rakoff, director of the Medical Group's Fertility Center, confirmed the diagnosis with another physician, but was also the one who eventually discovered that the patient was, in fact, pregnant. Dr. Rakoff said neither he nor John, Dr. John Willens, the university hospital physician who delivered the baby, had ever heard of a birth by a woman 
with such a well-documented case of premature ovarian failure. He's still doing it. I mean, do you read that because it's modern times with modern technology and be like, oh, God can do crazy things, whoa. Like, come on, get over yourself and all of our modernism. God has been doing this for ages. And it's awesome that he can do this because you need to know that the God of the Bible is the God who delivers his promises and does miraculous things. He turns your laughter of unbelief into the laughter of joy and amazement. It's exactly what God does time and time again. And Isaac is this promised life, this promised seed. I don't know about you, but sometimes I read that story and I think, okay, should end. Abraham, let's close up the books on Abraham. Isaac's born. Let's move on to Isaac. But the story doesn't end there. We've been waiting and longing for eight long chapters in the story of Abraham for this child, and he is born. And I got to imagine there has been no one in human history who has waited longer for a son than Abraham, especially knowing the very specific promise that God said, you will have a son, and then confirmed again and again, you're going to have a son. I'm like, when's this son coming? Decades went by. He's old, really old. His wife's old. And then chapter 22 comes. It's not the end of the story. We don't close the books on Abraham. We turn to chapter 22, and we see that the ultimate test is coming. Isaac, the firstborn son, the son of promise. You guys realize in ancient Near Eastern culture how important the firstborn son is to the family. This isn't just like, okay, this is my son, and that's important. This is everything. This is all of your inheritance passing down through him. This is all that you own and have in your name being passed on. This is everything to somebody like Abraham. And it seems as if Isaac was everything to both Abraham and Sarah. We already heard earlier in the story, Sarah's like, no, no, get Ishmael out of here. Mama Bear's protecting my baby boy. Nobody's going to touch him can see even in that story the, the start of this not just affection but this adoration this special son that they've been waiting and longing for and how can you help them but help feel for them to say yeah why wouldn't you feel that way but look at the way God speaks and says in verse 2 of chapter 22 take your son your only son the son whom you love if it wasn't clear it's clear by now this son has Great affection from his parents. The son whom you love. Now, in case any of you start having ethical dilemmas of knowing, well, can I trust God because he says to Abraham, you should go kill your son. He doesn't say, go kill your son, even though he does. He doesn't mean to kill his son. He says right from the beginning of the story that God tested Abraham. The author of the story is trying to make sure you don't have any doubts whatsoever, that any of you should get any ideas, that maybe I hear a voice and God's telling him, kill my wife. No, 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 he's not, okay? God doesn't tell people to do that. That's not the Lord. So don't take this as a little lesson of like, well, maybe I hear voices from God telling me to kill people. You probably didn't hear a voice from God. No, you didn't hear a voice from God. I can be assured of it. He's testing him. He's testing him of the ultimate prize, the ultimate adoration, his firstborn son. And, and this is not actually a strange idea throughout the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, we see the firstborn animal, the first fruits of all of the crops that come in. The first is God's. And oftentimes throughout the Old Testament, it's because they are a payment for sin. 
As Tim Keller points out in his book uh, about idolatry, I'm drawing a blank, but Tim Keller points out that the idea of asking for the firstborn probably made sense to Abraham in that ancient Near Eastern culture. If he would have said, hey, I want you to go take your wife, Sarah, and I want you to sacrifice, we'd be like, no, even if he didn't like her. I mean, he pretty much gave her away a couple other times, but no, that would not have made sense. Would not have made sense. But take the firstborn as a sacrifice, that makes sense. So he comes into that world and he starts speaking to him in that way and he tests him. Abraham knows that he's sinned. Abraham knows that the firstborn is God's and that he's going to trust him though. That's exactly the way this story goes. Did you notice earlier in the service I stopped right there at at verse 8? There's so much silence. It's giving you all these little details about the donkey and the boy and the servants and them going up and cutting the wood. Just silence, silence, silence. You're wondering, we're wondering, what is Abraham thinking? And eventually silence breaks. Father. Verse 7. Yes, son. Uh, yeah. See the wood. See the lamb. No, no. See the wood. See the fire. Where's the lamb? Silence breaks. What's Abraham going to say? God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they kept walking. There's no doubt about it when you read this story. Abraham, from the beginning, had faith in God. He knew that God was both holy and that a sin offering was needed, but that he also promised he's going to deliver on his promise, and he doesn't know yet how he's going to do it, but he knows I'm just going to trust him and keep going. And then they kept going. Let's pick up the story where we left off, verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand. He took the knife to slaughter his son. Oh man, just imagine the movie tension and the music building, the The knife gets up right over his son, but right then, right at the very last moment, verse 11, the angel of the Lord calls out to him from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on that boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. The story comes full circle. We know the test was to know, does he fear God? Does he truly love and fear God? Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, the name of that place. You like what he called it? The Lord will provide. And as it is to this day on that mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This story is so good. Like, it's, it's so, so good. In the Old Testament, But when you put this story in a collection of stories called the whole Bible, this story is phenomenally good. Way, way better than just a story about Abraham being tested to see if he really fears God. It's teaching us so much about God. It's teaching us so much about us. Did Abraham fear and love God most supremely? And you need to ask yourself that very same question. Do you love God as giver or do you just love his gifts? That's what he was being tested on that day on that mountain. Abraham, I want you to take your most prized possession, your supreme and best gift that I've given you, and I want to see, do you love me? Do you fear me more than anything else in the world? 
He passed the test. My question for you is, would you? Are you right now? What do you need to let go of? What do you need to allow to be put on the altar and be sacrificed? Even if it feels like you yourself and your whole world is crumbling down and dying, remember this truth. God always brings life through our dying. Jesus calls you die because through death comes life. We still have to ask the question, though, why didn't Isaac get sacrificed? And when we answer that question, you will not just be able to understand a little bit more of this story. You will better understand the question of how you can have the strength, the willpower, the spirit within you to be able to lay down everything else in the world. When you understand, why didn't Isaac get sacrificed? Did the ram's blood truly take away the sin and the debt and the guilt? No. That's clear. The Bible shouts that again and again and again. And here's where the penny drops. Here's where everything comes full circle. I want you to go look down at chapter 22. I want you to look at verse 2. And this is one of those obscure little things that you're going to just pass over. But it's so good. Take your son, your only son whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. There it is. There's the crown jewel nugget in the whole story. Go to the land of Moriah. Then you go to 2 Chronicles chapter 3 and you hear this. David, the king of Israel, had a desire to build a house for God's name and he wanted to build it in a place called the land of Moriah. In other words, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in the mountains that the Old Testament calls the land of Moriah. Are you guys starting to connect some dots yet? Many years later, on exactly those very same historical mountains, right outside of Jerusalem, another father walks a long road up a hill and takes his son, his only son, and he lays him down on some wood as a sacrifice because Isaac or the ram could never take away the sin and guilt of God's people. But this son, this sacrifice would. And on that day, the most disturbing but most beautiful thing happened. You remember in the story that climactic moment as he raises the knife over his son. And the knife is about to fall down on Isaac. And there's a voice and it speaks out. It says, Abraham, Abraham. We hear a voice from the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The son cries out to the father, but there's silence. It's just quiet. I mean, just let that sink in for a little bit. The knife's going to come down on Jesus Christ. It's going to crush the son with all sin and guilt from all people everywhere. The wrath of God being delivered on Jesus in that moment. You want to know why? The most horrendous thing that could have ever happened becomes the most beautiful thing? Because now you and I can look at the cross and you can know that God has not withheld his son, his only son, the son whom he loved. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 8 verse 32? For if he did not spare his only son but graciously gave him, how will he not give you all things? 
If you do not have that verse memorized, my friend, then you will be struggling as a Christian day in and day out with anxieties, with fears, with doubts. Can I trust this, God? Romans 8, 32. Memorize it. Get it stuck in your head and your brain. Repeat it to Christians all around this room week after week and day after day when we're struggling and wondering, will God provide? Yes! He breaks through the winter of this dreary land with Jesus Christ a part of the new creation. And he crushes the sun with his knife and his wrath. And he says to you, yes, I love you. I would not withhold even my son, the son whom I love. So yes, I will give you all things. Don't you see how knowing that makes it so incredibly easy, at least easier for you to now lay down any, anything God might ask you to lay on the altar? Your children, your spouse, your career. You know you know that he is both holy and gracious, that he is both the just and the justifier, that he will pay the penalty for sins, but keep his promise to be gracious to us. You know. So are you trusting him now with everything in your life? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to give you great thanks this morning. We thank you for sending Jesus as a foretaste of the new creation. We thank you for sending Jesus as the once and for all sacrifice on that same mountain in Jerusalem to take the wrath and the penalty of sin for us. We thank you, God, for forgiveness. We thank you for your call, your call to us that we can come and we can come to the altar. We can lay down all of our lives, even our very life itself, and know that you bring life through death even when it seems like death is inevitable, even when it seems like everything else is falling and crumbling all around us, you resurrect. So God, we thank you supremely for your promises through Jesus Christ, and we're asking right now that you would give us and grant us faith. This whole service would be a big shot in our arm and in our heart and in our faith help us get through even just the rest of this day. And then tomorrow when we wake up, help us, remind us of your promise and know that you're the God who keeps your promise and you've already given us a little taste. That's our prayer, God. And may that change us and transform us and may we be so generous as people because we have everything. We have Jesus. Thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen.